This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find Sydney's best catering company. And now they're doing home delivery. Um, check out what they've got. Get to it fast, Sydney. Victoria has already shut down, which is good. <laughs> they're acting like idiots down in Victoria, but we are no less idiots here in New South Wales. So, my dear friends and listeners and folks, you, of course, have come across folks who are not doing the right thing with COVID-19. You need to contact Bella Catering while you can. Get the people to your house now that you want to visit. Check their temperature before they get in the door. Make sure that they're hand sanitized. Feed them with some delicious Bella Catering food. Bellacatering.com.au. They are responsible for the show. This week, we must thank them. We must love Glenn and Maria and thank their team and everything they do. Now, let's get on to the show. You tell me how a president in the middle of a pandemic has got time for this bullshit. Are you kidding me? Hawking products, are goy, I don't care who it is. Resolute desk. This is what he's resolute about. Pandemic priorities. His daughter, Ivanka, top White House advisor. Are you kidding me? Marketing for a brand following calls for boycotts after Goya's CEO heaped praise on Trump last week. On your dime in the middle of a pandemic, they're selling beans. Are you, are you kidding me? Seriously. Seriously. This is not left and right. This is reasonable, my brothers and sisters. The guy's sitting on the Resolute desk with a bunch of Goya products. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a filmmaker, a, uh, a writer about and around film, and uh, one, of, one of the world's most renowned Q&A operators. And Q&As are now like nearly extinct because people do them <laughs> so badly. And um, if you've ever been to a film festival and heard someone facilitating a question from the audience that begins with, I don't have a question. It's really more of a statement. This is something that this man would usually have to battle through himself, but he conducts such well-researched and, and, and really sort of insightful discussions with filmmakers and creatives that they barely throw to the audience, which is such a treat to hear about. And I've only heard about it in abstract and not seen it myself. But he's also one of my favorite people that we've talked to on the show so far, a great guest of One Heat Minute Productions, particularly in that uh, Travis Woods, our, our brave co-host of the Increment Vice podcast, said to me and still continues to boast that the show that he recorded with this man that I'm about to speak to again for his returning visit to All the President's Minutes was longer than the movie itself. I think in the edit, it was just a minute or so shorter, uh, but still, I, that's the first thing I think about. It's... We're gonna we're gonna have more to talk about. I don't think he thinks so, but I think in the last five months there have been a few things that have happened that might <laughs> potentially inform this discussion that we're gonna talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure again to talk to Jim Hanful. Jim, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's funny when you were talking about Q and A's being 
distinct. I mean, the first thing that went through my mind is, uh, yeah, since the last time I talked to you with the coronavirus shutting down all the movie theaters here in L.A. where I'm at, uh, I haven't, you know, my, my main uh, thing that I do moderating these Q&As has uh, completely dried up, although I've started to do a couple via Zoom. Which I was is just going to say, has, has a Zoom one happened yet? Surely they've tapped you for a Zoom one. Yeah, the American Cinematheque out here is starting to do Zoom Q&As. They'll do virtual screenings where people can watch the movie online or at home or whatever, and then we'll do a Q&A. So I did one with Josephine Decker for Shirley, and I've actually got one coming up in a couple of weeks with Val Kilmer. Oh, uh, so, and, and you'll be happy to know we've, we've already recorded that one. That one wasn't live because you know Val's got some health issues and things like that, so we, we you know recorded it so that we could sort of do it comfortably at his pace, but uh, you will be happy to know that we did. Uh, there was plenty of heat discussion and Michael Mann discussion and uh, all that kind of thing. So uh, we'll have that, to. That'll a, be. We'll have to put a link to that in the description of the show. I'll be watching that one. Um, uh, you just access it obviously online to to see that. But oh, that's that's great. It's great news to hear. Yeah, I'll send you. I'll send you a link when I have it. I think it's going to be on July seventeenth or something like that. It's going to be up online. Oh, fantastic! Well, yeah, no, I think you know right now there's some really great virtual. Q and A content. I think the the big the the big one for all of us film geeks out there has been the reunited apart. Um, seeing some great uh, casts of sort of classic and cult movies getting pulled together. Um, you know, your Back to the Futures, your Ferris Bueller's Day Off, your Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. um, etc. Yeah. Your Ghostbusters, um, and particularly it's fun to watch which actors really don't want to be there. Um, <laughs> it's it's always a joy. Um, sounds <laughs> awesome though that you got to do uh, Mr. Kilmer. That's a that's a an incredible one um, uh, for I think everyone who loves any podcast that I've ever produced will know our gushing love for Mr. Kilmer. So that's, uh, that's great. Well, look, I, 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 I'm glad to hear that at least you're, that's starting to happen again, but man, we were talking, you know, five ish months ago. We, I think at the time you were sort of like, uh, taking and, and marveling as a lot of the American folk that I was talking to, like, hey, is your country still on fire? Because that's all we're hearing. Um, <laughs> so, are you okay? Uh, is everything fine? Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, yeah, that was sort of happening. And man, since then, has the world changed? Yeah, that's for sure. And it's funny thinking about all the president's men because when we talked about it last time, uh, there were, it felt so relevant. I mean, I felt like watch when I watched all the president's men five or six months ago to prepare for talking with you, uh, you know, I was seeing so many parallels to Trump and the, just the then current world situation and all that kind of stuff. And those parallels to a certain extent still exist, but I watched the movie again this morning, knowing I was going to be talking with you about it. And it was strange how now, you know, as many people have, as many people have commented, at least in this country, and I'm assuming around the world, you know, the, the sort of the mid seventies movie of the moment now has kind of become Jaws in terms of uh, yeah. something that has relevance to the, to the current political moment. I mean, watching all the presidents men this morning, it actually felt weirdly more abstracted. And I watched it almost more like a genre movie, like a sort of, you know, a newspaper movie or a thriller or something like that uh, because the world has changed so much in the last five months. Yeah, like what's so funny, and, and I don't know if we touched on it directly, but I like to remind people is a lot of people talk about, and you as a historian, this is great to talk to about, is 
people have always used Jaws or the like the long arm of Jaws, so to speak, as like the this was the death of New Hollywood. This was the death of New Hollywood in 1968. It started the collapse of the studio system. Jaws, um, you know, taking prints all around the country and being released in first blockbuster sort of classical blockbuster style, which still continues to this day around the country at the same time, um, very tactically, rather than roadshow style or going from big cities and then working its way into the center of the country and around the world. Um, the thing with Jaws is, it's in my mind, and you would, and I'm interested to hear what you think. Is a deeply new Hollywood movie, like the 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 new Hollywood, Absolutely. the new Hollywoodness of that movie is, you've got a cop who has a questionable past that we don't really know about, has moved to a small town, has a challenging relationship with his wife, and comes into this small town and realizes that this government, local government, <laughs> led by a mayor, would rather see their population eaten by sharks yeah. than to lose the money that will come in from their seasonal tourist boom. And it is like, there is nothing more new Hollywood sentiment about that. What then Spielberg does, and this is part of his sort of, you know, what would you call it? Like uncanny genius of like how to tell an entertaining popcorn movie is that he then harnesses that into a monster movie. Like the, the second half right. or even like the, the, the final third, if you like, is this epic monster movie. But ultimately, so much of that new Hollywood energy and insecurity and, like, um, you know, political um, messing around, all that stuff is all there in the foundations. And and I think that the extremity of our experience right now is just like, yeah, the monster, it, it, it may, the monster may not be a shark, right, for, for our time right now, but the monster's a virus that is literally killing nearly the same amount of people that died in World War Two in, mm -hmm. in, in that country, uh, you know, right now. Yeah. No, I, well, I couldn't agree with you more about Jaws. I'm actually really glad you said that because I, I think, I think it's true. I mean, I think the only reason it's, you know, not thought of, I mean, I think it has as much, Jaws has as much in common or certainly probably more in common with something like, like all the presidents that are the parallax view than it does with a Marvel movie or whatever right. you want to say is the, the kind of thing that it is, has spawned. I mean, it's just, it's just the, the fluke that, it was the right movie at the right time that hit so huge, you know, made it this kind of uh, transitional film. But I've always, I've, you know, first of all, I've always had a kind of lack of patience with that attitude that says, you know, Jaws ruined movies or Star Wars ruined movies, like the Jaws and Star Wars kind of ended an era. And, you know, because, I mean, I think, look, you know, this, this idea that, that, you know, I mean, certainly movies changed because of the whole blockbuster it, sh it, shifts, it shifted a paradigm. I mean, it, like, it, like, I, I get annoyed with that too because people are like, oh, New Hollywood died or that was the end of movies. I'm like, you know, j just, so, you know, knowing that you are a, a, a self-confessed Scorsese disciple, I'm like, <clears throat> I do the clear yeah. throat. <clears throat> Raging Bull <laughs> was 1980. Right. One of the greatest right. pieces of American cinema ever committed to celluloid. And you're telling yeah. me that that doesn't have the energy of a new Hollywood movie. You're saying that that is some like emphatic Reagan movie. No, there was still really fascinating seventies hangover movies that were being made into the early eighties. And, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to have Drew McWeeny on the show. He had that terrific show eighties all over with Scott Weinberg and those early episodes of that show like 80 to 81, like hearing mm -hmm. the movies that had kind of been produced in the late 70s or developed in the late 70s and early 80s, they've got the most fascinating sort of political spectrum of any of the 80s movies because they hadn't had that kind of Reagan 
imprint that new like remasculinization of America there. So like, you know, I think that you get that that's that all still sort of happening into the beginnings of the Reagan presidency. And then it's sort of like, you know, is tempered and, and that, you know, that sort of urgency and all of the, all of the Watergate era stuff, obviously that, you know, all the president's men lives in and all that sort of stuff. It's all happening around that time. But, you know, I, I, I always think of, you know, I, I always think of the punctuation mark on, that new Hollywood era being that, you know, the incredible raging bull, like that is, that is where it's at for me. Well, and you know, and I would, you know, and I would argue that this idea that those kinds of movies, you know, stopped or something. I mean, I mean, look, you can talk about raging bull. You can talk about, you know, Goodfellas, which was made 10 years later. You can talk about, you know, just talking about, you know, Marty, it's like, well, you know, Wolf of Wall Street has the energy (laughs) and the, subversiveness and all those things of a, of a, of a seventies movie. And I think like the eighties, you know, look every decade, I mean, I think, you know, I think it takes a, you know, you can't really look at any decade until at least 10 or 15 years past, you know, but, but I think, you know, I think any decade, I mean, I was just thinking even the other day about, um, you know, I was thinking about the early nineties and which at the time didn't seem like it was necessarily the greatest period for movies ever. But I was thinking about some of the movies I went to see in 1991. Again, thinking about, you know, Goodfellas. But there was like a few months where I saw Goodfellas and Miller's Crossing and uh, Jacob's Ladder and a bunch of other stuff. And then the next year was Defending Your Life and uh, you know Point Break, which I think is a great movie. And you know, and look, you know, speaking hey, of heat, hey, we, okay, look we, at we, look we, at ninety. We can totally on this podcast before we jump into Heat and ninety five. Very big fans <laughs> of Point Break. I mean, it is yeah. there. You know, as as a as an LA movie, as a, a movie masculinity movie, as a great understanding of like um, voyeurism and beauty. It's it's a it's a really well, underrated movie. And you want to talk about a subversive uh, answer to the Reagan era? I mean, there's literally yeah. a scene in the movie where Ronald Reagan pillages through backyards and through people's <laughs> houses, destroying them after he has just started a fire with. Uh, you know, a gas with a, a gas pump. I mean, so it's like, come on. I mean, there's, there's a, it's, it's incredible, but, but yeah, I mean, just like even going into the nineties and thinking about like 95, okay. Like mm. 95 when he, you know, he came out, I mean, my memory, maybe my memory is a little bit off on the timing of this, but I don't think so. I think I remember in the, in late 95 going to a multiplex to see heat and there being on other screens in that multiplex at the same time, casino and Nixon, Yes. I mean, like three, three hugely ambitious American epics that are certainly as great as anything that the new Hollywood of the seventies prior. So this whole idea that like it kind of ended anyway, I think is, uh, is nonsense. And, and, you know, and, 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 and the eighties, you know, I mean, thinking about some of the filmmakers who rose in the mid to late eighties, I mean, whether it is like, you know, somebody like an Oliver Stone or Spike Lee or whoever, you know, Catherine Bigelow, I mean, these people were still. You know, and and they and I'm sure that 20 years from now, I'll look at this year and I'll, I mean, maybe not because it's been kind of a strange there's, like, there's, like, there's like three, there's like three movies released yeah. this year. I guess I've, I guess I've only seen five, yeah, <laughs> I've only seen like five movies at theater this year. So maybe not this year, but, but the year before, because, because I was even thinking it's funny, like, you know, um, I always think of 99 as being a particularly great year yes. for American movies. And then my, my girlfriend argues that like, yeah, and then the year after 2000 was so crappy, you know, and. But then I was looking at a list of movies that came out in 2000, and I mean, I, there were like this, there were like 15 flat out great movies that came out that year. Now, of course, I'm drawing a blank on what all of them were. But um, well, 2000, but anyway. two, 2000 in terms of um, journalism movies 
and this is the one that comes off the top of my head straight away while I'm Googling and bringing others up, is Almost Famous, one of the best journalism movies sure. ever made. You've got Snatch, mm-hmm. Unbreakable um, is another one that there came out in that year. So mm-hmm. they, 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 it's not at best in show. Um, it, there's, there's, they're not hard to dig to find really great ones. But, yeah, compared to 99, I mean, that's a sort of a bumpy mm-hmm. year. But I, I want to touch on that what you just said about Marty and it's something that I sort of talked about. I think that that is one of the best ways that I personally approach the concept of authorship. So like when we talk about movies and you as a movie historian know this better than anyone, it's like we kind of, um, sometimes they call us the vulgar auteurists, you know, the, the people who still sort of talk about movies as having a, an entity with a singular vision behind them. And, Obviously, there are so many exceptions to the rule, and obviously that is a uh, an argument that is limiting, and obviously it's an argument that also emerged at a time um, when you know a lot of these young you know maverick filmmakers, some of them now who are established, you know the the kings of I guess American cinema, um, were emerging on the scene, and and so one of the ways that I've always approached it, particularly with Michael Mann, and I think it's a fascinating lens to look at it is, and 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 how I got into this with Mann himself is. I think Michael Mann's one of those fascinating case studies as as an American filmmaker because he wasn't making films when Malick and Scorsese and De Palma and Coppola and John Milius were making films. He he kind of started his career making, you know, an event, adventurous sort of documentary, moves in really to television for the longest mm-hmm. time, makes then TV movies and then sporadically makes films. But you look at Heats and you look at The Insiders, The Insider is draws such a strong through line to mm-hmm. the political uh, sort of the political um, energy of this time of this new Hollywood era that it's like, it almost feels like if you played it in the run of, you know, Alan J. Pakula movies, if you played it yeah. after Clute and Parallax and presidents and then put the insider on people like, yeah, this is the same filmmaker or a filmmaker who is like a contemporary of this person, but technically based on the time that man makes those films. So I think it's a, it's an interesting way or an interesting lens to look at it with Marty's like, you know, obviously because he's been making films for 40 or more years. Um, it's an interesting mm-hmm. way to look at films and going, look, this is how you can sort of see, you know, d- chart the political energy of that person. You can sort of chart their, their outlook as they go along because they're sort of making movies in this style. They're making movies with this urgency. They're making movies with, maybe it's a bit of a question mark. Maybe it's like, you know, and it's like Oliver Stone, even when he's making contemporary movies, he cannot help himself, but make everything feel to have that paranoid edge. You know, this is a guy who Mm -hmm. went to Vietnam. So, you know, when JFK comes out and like, wow, this guy's a, you know, this guy's a a loon. It's like the guy went to Vietnam. (laughs) He was a soldier. Mm -hmm. If you, if you don't think that he came back with a blatant distrust for American power brokers, I I don't, I can't Mm -hmm. help you. I don't really know um, what we can do, but I think it's a really, it's a fascinating way to chart. And it's the same with the great Alan J. Pakula himself. Like you look at the Pelican brief and, Although it's in the '90s and it's using all the, you know, maybe cinematic and, you know, and and also the the the, the tools of great actors at the time, that's a a '70s energy thriller made with all the '90s tools. Um, and it's Definitely. it's it's that I think it's always fun to sort of go when you're charting the the filmmakers socio-political context and how that's expressed in their movies because you can sort of go, oh, well, that's a that's definitely a a '70s distrustful paranoia, you know, someone who grew up at that age and that's how it's, it's being expressed in all the work that they're doing. Yeah. And it's also fascinating to see how some directors, how their sensibility, 
either succeeds or fails with the times or, or I should say like how adaptable they are. Yes. You know, like Scorsese being a perfect example of someone who he, you know, he has his, his career, his prospects ebb and flow, but he has clearly managed to figure out, you know, in every decade, there's been a period where he has figured out how to harness the system in some way or another, you know, like he, he has never really stopped. And there are people like him or Spielberg, um, is obviously the ultimate example, you know, and then there are some people who just, they, they definitely have their moments and then they somehow their thing they do doesn't intersect with the way pace change and, and the culture changes and the industry changes. And then there are interesting people like Paul Schrader, who you kind of can, will count out on that regard. And then he comes back blazing with something like first to four, yeah. and which first I form, thought was one of the like best. Oh, it's like a lightning strike. Yeah, one of the, <laughs> yeah, and it was one. Of the, I thought it was one of the best movies he ever made, and it felt about like about as pure a Paul Schrader movie as you could possibly get. Yes, and you know, at a point where he hadn't made a movie in a long time that had really connected with people on any kind of, uh, you know, big, I mean, I always, I always like his movies, but you know what I'm saying? Like that one somehow, uh, you know, it hit the the zeitgeist. Uh, I mean, not at a, you know, not like a Spielberg level, well, the, but on the, a just sort of the last know. zeitgeist thing that Paul Schrader had written was that he was a fan of Taylor Swift on Facebook, and as soon as that happened, I think that was <laughs> that was about the last time that people really engaged with him on a zeitgeist level. He's always operating on the fringe. Uh, I think we could be fair to say that, but no, but you, I think you're so right. Like first reformed, you watch Schrader movies, and for for a time, um, whether it's the you know he's he's a he's not a subtle filmmaker in any respect, and so I think that sometimes it's certain films and certain topics and certain energies of films, and I think that you take a perfect protagonist like a preacher questioning his faith, and then you know mm-hmm. looking at the institutional corruption of churches, and then looking at you know impending doom and and these and the people who are meant to be finding us some sort of spiritual. Um, comfort or guidance through really complex times and realizing that they're just kind of like, well, they're just burning the money right now because they know we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Um, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a great comedian, Amer- American comedian, Tim Dillon, who I really enjoy. Um, and his podcast is just uh, one of the most wonderful sources of rants and crazy um, ever. And he just said, you know, one of his friends and him were talking on the show and Tim said, it's the beginning of the end. And his friend Ray Comfort responded, no, we're in the middle of the end. And so I think that when you're in the middle of the end, first reformed is exactly what you want to see. You want to see something angry. You want to see something like that's raging. And, uh, Mm -hmm. um, and it's just also, I think it's his most, it's so beautiful. It's so still. It's it's, and, and how someone like an Ethan Hawke doesn't get an, I think it was an, you know, we could get angry about the Oscars for any number of reasons, but how he doesn't get a nomination and win for first reform is like, yeah, what madness is this? What crazy, <laughs> what, 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 what movies did you see this year? It's his best yeah. performance in his whole career of great performances. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it's interesting, you know, going back to the whole auteur thing, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting because one thing I have been doing, you were asking me before we got on here, you know, how my life has changed since the coronavirus and, and, and it, not that much, except one thing I have started doing because I've had a little bit more time on my hands to watch movies is I've been going, there are, they're having a few directors that I've kind of chosen at random and just watched all of their movies in a row. Good, um, good and choice. so I did it and I did it and I, and I, I, 
Spielberg is one who I did it with, and and he and it, it is fascinating watching Spielberg how, uh, like you were, you know, Jaws and Close Encounters are very much movies, like you say, of the you know even Close Encounters is a movie of the new Hollywood, and yeah. a movie about another movie about paranoia and and all kinds of and about uh you know and sort of questioning and examining like male roles in you know in in a, in a world where masculinity is changing and things like that. I mean, it's got all that kind of stuff, and it it um you know Spielberg is such an interesting director in the way he's almost a different director in every decade. I mean, and, and yet there's, you see the continuity, but I mean, the post nine 11 Spielberg is a totally different guy from the Spielberg, uh, you know, of the 1980s. And that Spielberg is, is very different in a lot of ways Couldn't than the great. Spielberg of the 1970s. But yeah. like, you know, the post nine 11 Spielberg, it's just, it's just fascinating how, all of his, how he only made, I think he only made um, maybe two movies after 9-11 that were not period pieces or, or set in the future. Like, like they're all either period pieces or sci-fi futuristic movies. And yet no American, no Hollywood director like was more engaged with the moment than he was. I mean, all of those movies, whether it's, you know, Munich or the Munich, terminal Munich, or even you know, Munich, one of my favorite. One of my favorites. Yeah, I mean, they're all kind of about like rest, they're all wrestling with these post nine eleven America issues, and they and they and they're much more um, you know pessimistic in some ways than a lot of his earlier films and everything. But it's but it's really interesting the whole auteur thing. I mean, you know, I, like look, I uh, I think you can be an auteurist and still acknowledge obviously how complex movies are and how many different voices come into it. I mean, I'm actually right now I'm working on I'm going to be recording a commentary track for the British Film Institute's Blu-ray of Frank Capra's Pocketful of Miracles. So I've been studying Frank Capra, and I've been watching all Frank Capra's movies in order. And Capra's very interesting because he's, a lot of what people kind of traditionally think of as Capra-esque values or whatever are really the values of screenwriter Robert Riskin, who wrote a (laughs) lot of his movies. And Riskin, you know, Riskin was this kind of FDR, New Deal liberal. And Capra was actually a, you know, fairly conservative Republican. And yet his movies don't completely don't really reflect that because they're more reflect, they're more reflecting risk in politics in a way than Capra's. And yet there, the movies that Capra directed that are not written by Robert Riskin have more in common with those movies than the movies Riskin wrote that Capra did not direct. So there's still something about the fact that there is one person or maybe a couple, if you have a team, or whatever, there is one man or woman who this stuff, who is the sort of final filter through whom everything has to run. Because honestly, like, I think the most important thing about directing is taste. I mean, it's not knowing, it's not knowing about lenses. It's not even, it's, 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 it is taste. It's purely taste. It's like, it's what you like. And the directors you respond to are the ones who have good taste. The ones who, you know, um, or who have the taste that most resembles yours or whatever. And so I think, you know, I, I still think it's fair with all the advances in film theory and film thinking and all that uh, to sort of look at movies. I still think it's a director's medium, and I still think it's a great, it's also just a great way of kind of organ, organizing film history. And as you say, you can kind of, if you watch all of Spielberg's movies, or you watch all of Marty's movies, or you watch all the Palmer's movies, or all, you know, or uh, whoever, it's, uh, you kind of get this dual pleasure of tracing 
the culture and tracing film culture, but also tracing how one person's way of looking at things changed or did not change. Yeah, the, the, and that the, the complete view of the world shift. Like you look at even like I like to split Spielberg personally in um, uh, between the shift of 93. You know, once he does Shindles, yeah. there's a different yeah. – it's a different director um, in, in a lot of ways. And the other big one is uh, there's a terrific podcast called 21st Century Spielberg, which a friend of the show, Chris Evangelista, is producing. And uh, I, I totally agree. Like when you look at and, and listening to his show, sort of he points this out, is when you look at like the – like this is Spielberg's resume. Just we were just talking about him from um, beyond two thousand. So two thousand and one is AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, The Terminal, War of the Worlds, and Munich. Like so, in the in in, in two thousand and four five, he makes War of the Worlds and Munich. <laughs> oh, sorry, both in two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. Like what a double! What a bleak! Yeah. What a bleak! Yeah. and on the button double about. Yeah, like uh, about the, a world riddled with chaos and terror, and and then concepts of like the 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 sh- the you know, and he's very apt with the complexity and the weird ambivalence of political ideologies butting up against each butting up against humanity, and people sort of mm-hmm. ignoring yeah. ignoring humanity for political ideology, um, or or you know, personal allegiances and personal gains to a certain extent, and I I I I think. When people always do that, you know, what's your top three Spielberg? It's one of those impossible things. It's like saying, what's your top three Scorsese? Like, with such mm-hmm. a rich body of work, it's like, oh, don't make me do yeah. that. It hurts to do that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, as someone who's equally, you know, talented, like a Tarantino, has a smaller resume. So the top three becomes mm-hmm. an easier prospect. But I think mm-hmm. I put Munich I put Munich so high on my list. I'm like Jaws. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm like Jaws, Raiders, Munich. And people are like, really? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's that good. It's he's, um, and even Bridges Spies I've recently watched as well. It's just such a, like, just completely knocking something out of the park. Unbelievably talented, you know, exceptionally formally crafted movie that kind of, I think people just kind of expect Spielberg to be really great, so it doesn't get. But right. if, if, if another filmmaker made that movie, we'd be talking about it for yeah. a decade. I I totally agree. Yeah, he's a little bit a victim of his own consistency (laughs) and his own prolificness, you know, because, yeah, I mean, and Bridge of of Spies is another, like, unbelievably bleak movie when you, I I mean, just, you know, it's it's essentially a movie about, you know, one somewhat, you know, one principled guy surrounded by complete imbeciles. I mean, that's kind of, (laughs) you know, it's it's, it's a very, I mean, and, and, you know, that's the whole thing. Another thing of Spielberg, you know, the the terror of mob rule in Spielberg movies, which War of the Worlds obviously has also. I mean, it's it's very uh, like I watched War of the Worlds not that long ago, and that was a very unsettling movie to watch during the pandemic and a lot of the political unrest that's going on here in this country. I mean, it was it really uh, it was, was very. Was for, for a guy who people think of as a comforting filmmaker, it was one of the least comforting afternoons I've had watching a long time. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I mean, the videos at the beginning of this outbreak all around the world, and especially that were happening in Australia, like fights, fights breaking out in supermarkets over toilet paper, mm-hmm. and people pushing in, and things like that. I remember really <laughs> early on that you know that's one thing that happened is um, you know when my wife and I, because we'd never take out a little a little kids out, you know, I've got a, now he's just turned two year old son and a, and a three and a half year old daughter. And so whenever we were going shopping, I would say like, well, one of us is going to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And we're not going to be with the kids when we go out. And and so many times I told her, I'm like, if you go out and you're in a supermarket and you have a full trolley and some idiot in the in the line in front of you starts fighting, like in all these videos we're seeing all over socials in Australia is like things breaking. I'm just go, leave. Just drop the trolley and walk out. <laughs> You don't need that. Like, yeah. We don't, we don't need to, you know, especially because we're obviously already worried about the virus. You don't need to start being around people who are fighting over toilet paper and wrestling each other and our poor supermarket workers, um, mm-hmm. breaking up right. fights like security, like bouncers at nightclubs. Like it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, that, that's a frightening one. And hearing Chris talk about it, I can really recommend if you, if folks who are listening now, you know, I'm happy to always shout out great content, but the 21st century Spielberg series is terrific. Um, and the 21st century Spielberg episode on both Munich and War of the Worlds is terrific. It's just uh, and 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 made me want to go back and watch War of the Worlds. But it it gets really dark and disturbing. I don't know if I'm ready for Tom Cruise to hang out with Tim Robbins in that movie right now. I don't know if I'm in the headspace <laughs> yeah. for it. I don't know if I'm in the headspace for it. But uh, I think when I'm ready, I'll get back into it. Oh mm-hmm. well, yeah. you know, I think. You who were worried that we wouldn't have anything to talk about. We haven't even talked about this film yet. <laughs> we have not even talked about the great Alan Pakula. And since the last time I spoke to you, I think you would you would be fascinated with this as well. Um, I got to speak to John Borston, who you may know as Alan Pakula's assistant mm-hmm. on All the President's Men, who sat in the editing room watching the maestro do his thing. And one of the fascinating things, and I know that you would be interested in this from American Cinematographer and also just talking to different editors, talked about working with one of Peck and Parr's editors was the assembly editor of All the President's Men. And so when when they were working together and they were getting this film together from the dailies into the cut, Robert L. Wolf, who is the editor of the film, um, just basically assembled the movie as he had done many, many times, looked at all the so-called dead air in this movie and they did an assembly cut of it and there's you know more more to come on the john borson episode as you guys will listen to in a few episodes time um so i won't spoil everything but one thing that i found so thrilling and fascinating um was when they assembled it the movie felt long it felt arduous and laborious and when they looked at it pakula said i need you to go back and i need you to put back in the gaps so what the editor Mm. wrote wolf had done has you know, take out the dead air. They'd been like, he'd filmed scenes with little like sort of hangover moments with contemplative moments with quiet. And they'd been cutting to speed things up and the mm-hmm. act of slowing things down, which I wanted to talk to you about, they, they slowed it down in the way that they've edited. They elongated the scenes back to the original conceptions of this director. His taste in his mind was these scenes need to have the air. They need to have the, the they need to have this loaded, pregnant pauses that we just read into. They need to have those little hangover moments. And when they added it back in, they, Mr. Borson was, you know, was discussing that the movie felt so much faster. Like it felt mm-hmm. like they'd sped it up and it was completely counterintuitive exercise to a large extent because you're like, I'm actually adding things in to make this thing feel faster. But um, right. That was one observation that I wanted to talk to you about is that it's just so funny to think that a movie like this that does have that needs that. It needs that extra time yeah. to feel faster. Yeah, it's a funny thing about movies because, you know, you are taught sort of you know in film school, both in screenwriting classes and editing classes. They're always on you to, 
you know, cut the fat and only go to the essential and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And yet, you know, first of all, so many of the things you think of, if you think of moments from your favorite movies, they're not necessarily the essential moments. I mean, I, I mean, I always think there's this shot in Bull Durham where Kevin Costner's character is just walking down the street in the middle of the night, picks up like this cardboard tube and looks at his reflection in a store window and swings it. And there is no reason for this scene to exist in the movie. It does absolutely nothing in terms of, you know, story or plot or whatever. And yet I think it's an essential scene or even shot. I don't even know if it's more than one shot, Um, but it's sort of an essential shot in terms of the rhythm of that movie. You need that moment at that particular time in the movie to sort of just stop and pause and reflect on the first half hour of the movie. And then you can go on and then it cuts back to something else. (laughs) And, and, and it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting how often, um, you know, this is, and this is a little different than what you're talking about, but it's interesting to me how whenever they, in history, they have movies like Heaven's Gate or Once Upon a Time in America where the studio or somebody panics and they take a long movie and they cut it drastically. The short version always feels longer to me. Like the short version of Heaven's Gate, it feels endless. And the short version of Once Upon a Time in America feels longer to me than the four hour version. And it is, you know, a movie... I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think one is that movies are, they, they are about rhythm. And so you kind of have to speed up and slow down. Like even, even movies that you think of as nonstop action movies, like Raiders of the Lost Ark have a ton of moments of, you know, where, where everything slows down, where that aren't action. And the reason the action scenes work is because of the things that happen in between those action scenes. I mean, a movie that's literally nonstop action. I mean, there, there are some that come close, like, like the John Wick movies or something, but um, but if something is truly nonstop action, it, it becomes monotonous. Um, and I do think there's just something about movies that have, you know, every movie has its own internal rhythm and all the president's men has this internal rhythm where part of the, you know, it's a procedural. I mean, it is a movie that yeah. is the, the appeal of all the president's men is seeing how things work is just seeing how bit by bit newspaper stories are put together and discoveries are made and how leads are followed and how, you know, you, you could take a lot of the phone conversations in all the president's men. And, you know, you could, there are scenes where they call somebody back and you could, you could theoretically get that information across in one phone conversation instead of two, or you could have Dustin Hoffman and, and Robert Redford, you know, go to somebody's house once and not keep coming back. But I mean, part of the point of the movie is this putting you in the headspace of this kind of relentless dogged quality these guys have and need to have and how it's and and how there's these stories come together with this just like trickle of information it's very rare that they have you know every once in a while they have a moment where they get some bombshell but a lot of it is just this drip 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 and it makes sense to me that the movie would be slower without that because that drip, drip, drip is what creates the suspense. I mean, you yes. you watch that movie and you're leaning forward the whole time, wait, just wanting these guys to get their break, or wanting Ned Beatty to come out of this fucking office, <laughs> or you know, what, whatever it is, you're waiting for that. I mean, and it's and it's suspenseful. And so I think it, it. I didn't know that about the editing until you just told me, but it doesn't surprise me. 
Yeah, it's 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 so funny you said that about Bull Durham as well because it's like I, when I think of that scene, you're absolutely right from like a functional perspective. You breathe, right? You're breathing in, and we'll get back to all the presence, I promise. But it just so so much about his character too. Like it's a mm-hmm. quiet. Yeah. It's like this guy can't even walk down a street and see a tube on the street without thinking about baseball. Like he's obsessed. Yeah. It's his whole life. Of course, every decision he's going to be making is going to be probably neglecting you know, happiness, life, stability, love, like whatever those things are, mm-hmm. it's like everything is about this. And yeah, in yeah. presidents, you put it so right. It's like suspense is about anticipation. And if you don't, if you, if you cut it all out, you, it, it is just all the drip feeding um, doesn't have any of that mounting quality that, yeah. that you can have with the, the gaps in there. But it's just a fascinating thing that we do that um, uh there's that inclination. And I think you're so right. When you look at, when you go back and look at movies when they are actually as they are intended, which is strange to say, but it's like, um, and look, I think it's so funny in the zeitgeist of, uh, contemporary cinema. It's like, Oh, the Snyder cut. It's like, do you know how many other cuts of movies? I saw someone tweet the other day. I think it might've been a friend of the show, Garth Franklin. He was like, look, enough with the Snyder cut. Now guys, we need Michael Mann's cut of the keep, you know? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. We need these movies. We've heard about these movies in law. Like there's, you know, there's these cuts of movies that exist or have, have only just been released. It's not a unique thing of like a, a director, a director having their movie chopped to pieces and then being completely unrecognizable released and then 10 years later having the fortunate you know uh, blessing to be able to release the intended version and ultimately that is always way more respected <laughs> and way better received um so yeah that that four hour once upon a time in america um it does it does not feel as labored as the shorter yeah. Uh, version yeah and yeah i just all the president's men it, it's again like it's a, it's a weird it's it's such a fascinating movie. I know we, we talked about this the first time that I, like, it's one of those movies I'm always uh, trying to figure out how he did what he did because it doesn't, it shouldn't necessarily be suspenseful. I mean, basically the suspense all comes from whether or not these guys are going to be able to get people to answer their phone call or, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not exactly, uh, you know, trying to hunt down a shark, but, uh, but somehow it, it is very suspenseful. And again, if you take out that, stuff in between if you take out the waiting for someone to return the phone call the phone call isn't as dramatic no and if you if you take out dustin hoffman telling a secretary i'm still here it's nowhere near as satisfying (laughs) when you actually see him in the office being willing to talk um or, or just popping up and 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 you know the we always talk about like centerpiece moments or action set pieces or you know the what is the crux of this movie what is the scene of the movie there's a couple of them. There's obviously shark attacks. They get on the boat. There's kind of different elements and different parts of the movie. But one of the big things that I always get from all the president's men is the scene, like the pièce de résistance almost of this entire film is a single long, slow, drawling conversation with one person being the bookkeeper. You know, in an Academy mm-hmm. Award mm-hmm. nominated performance, um, and 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 Hoffman really like pumping the brakes on all of his inclined Carl uh, 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 Bernstein ticks and just sort of yeah. luxuriating in Jane Alexander and just trying to eke every last detail out of her in the most 
passive and sort of sponge-like meditative way that you've got. And that is just a, that that's, you know, a multiple minute conversation. It feels like a, an epic arc in this story. It's like, a, a, it's not the truck chase in Raiders, but it's like, it's, it's a thrilling because it's like, is she, yeah. what is this person, this person who's finally let them in the door going to say, and it's all mm-hmm. the slammed doors and it's all the rationalization and all those things um, leading up to it that we're going to do. So look, what we might do, Jim, let's jump into this minute right now. We are going to okay. watch it again together. Um, we're going to, and, and for folks who are now listening, you guys are going to listen along to this minute. Um, it is, of course, the 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, um, uh, or toured by two men, Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford. Um, it is the 67th minute. We're going to watch it together. We've been having a little bit of banter together now, uh, Jim and I. You're going to watch the boys banter in their car and do some fun uh do some fun um, uh, hypothesizing about the way that people are saying things and about news and about facts, um, which is always very fun. Um, so you guys are going to listen along and we're going to come back and talk about it. I'll try. All right, what about all that shredding that took place right after the break? We need to know more about the papers that were in the shredding. Well, I think you have some idea what's in the papers. When the former attorney general comes into the office when it's taking place, it's committee to re-elect. And he's got a raincoat over his head. Why is he wearing a raincoat? It could be raining is what could happen. Let me just go through the story again. You've got a woman who's frightened at the door. She works for creep. She said that the shredding taking place. We don't know what's in the papers. We know that the former attorney general comes in there with an overcoat over his head. It could be raining. There's a lawyer present. We don't know what he asked him. She wouldn't talk about that. Now, will you please tell me where there's a story? There's a story in the fact that the, that the, that the interview did not take place in her home, but took place in the office of the committee to re-elect. How is there a story in there? There's it's a story in that because there's a lawyer in the office. I mean, you're more resistant than she is. That's right. Why? Because there's not enough fact. Well, then let's just turn around and go back and question her again. This won't take long at all. We just want to... Please go away, okay? Will you please leave before they see you? Who who did you mean? What what do you mean, they? Such a wonderful little arc in that minute, Jim. Yeah. And such a great, you know, shot for Gordon Willis. I mean, I know we all talk about Gordon Willis all the time and how, how great he is. And, and, uh, but just the night exteriors in this movie are so spectacularly lit. There's something I can't put, I I can't put my finger out, but there's just something about like that car scene. Um, it just feels so like what it is like to be in a car at night, which it sounds like a stupid, obvious thing, but I, 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 there's just something about the, the way Willis photographs that and the way Pecula does it all in one simple take, you know, with no cuts. There's no coverage back and forth between the two of them. It's just sort of, you know, the banter. It, 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 it's like, it's like Pecula kind of wants to not favor one point of view over the other one. So yes. you just get the two of them in the frame the whole time without a cut. And it's just something, it's, it's very simple, but it's, so elegant and so absorbing and so effective. And they're not oppositional. You know, like I think one of those yeah. things when you do a two shot, like the classic conversational two shot, eye lines the same um, for folks who are watching. Like you've seen it in every interview scene. You've seen it in every coffee house scene. You've seen it in the most famous coffee house scene that has been spoken languidly about on this podcast production. <laughs> um, uh, the heat coffee shop scene. It's like that traditional yeah. two shot. They don't give us that. They want these guys right. to be, somewhat unified I think in is is where they're going is like they're still together on this but I just yeah. love the there's a story here no there's not 
And I think that that's, yeah. I, I love these guys learning. God, there's so few yeah. movies it feels like that they allow people to not be fully formed and actually don't have all the answers. And it's nice, mm-hmm. to, it's nice to be catching up with them because you're like, they're not ahead of me. This is confusing. Where is the story? Yeah. And they yeah. continue to scrutinize their own beliefs as they go along and going, can we just ask? And I guess the wonderful bombshell that we get at the end of this minute is there seems to have been a communication or an interception or something, even in the small amount of time that they've taken to drive away from this person's house, they've come back and someone, someone as they've hypothesized, there's something about the way people are talking to us. There's somewhere there, Valerie Curtin's character, Miss Millen, someone has gotten to her. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting, you know, the Woodward character, I always wonder watching that scene when he's resisting the idea of there being a story, like, does he really believe that? Or is it because of what happens earlier with Ben Bradley? Like, I, you know, because I feel like I felt, the Redford character. I personally have felt it's it, the Bradley influence at that moment. It's like, it's, it's, he's, yeah. he's completely squashed and, and I'm totally, I, I'd, I could totally hear a counter argument and equally be, uh, be interested in it. But I think my thing is it is more like I am not going to lift up my expectations or get excited or get thrilled if I don't have something that is so rock solid that I can walk into Ben Bradley's office tomorrow and he's going to go, wow, that's great. You know, like I just feel exactly. like, I feel like he's got like, uh, no, I'm, uh, you know, once yeah. bitten twice shy very much. Yeah. And I think, but I think that's something that's interesting about this movie too. Like that's the kind of, thing that is obvious about human nature and yet that you don't necessarily see in movies that often kind of tying in with your thing about getting to see characters actually learning and evolving. And I don't mean learning like movies. Usually what learning means in a movie is, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson and as good as it gets, you know, learning <laughs> to love somebody or something, you know what I mean? It's me like usually that's be what, a better man. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. That's usually what learning is in a movie and what you get here is something a little bit more subtle and, you know, not, I don't want to say more realistic. I'm not saying it's good because it isn't realistic, but, but you know what I'm saying? It, it feels less movie-ish yes. and yet delivers all the satisfactions of, again, again, it's a fascinating thing about all the president's men is all the ways that it's not like a conventional Hollywood movie and yet totally delivers all the satisfactions of a Hollywood thriller with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah, because um, the great Kenny Turin and I spoke since the last time you and I chatted, and he was just like, yeah. he, he was so gracious and wonderful and insightful, and he just talked about, you know, watching this movie as a guy who was working in culture writing at the time of Watergate at the Washington Post, and he's watching mm. this movie, and one of the things that, that sort of it helped dispel a myth for him is like, Cinematic authenticity is kind of this grand, this grand asterisk that you just have to approach mm-hmm. it with. Like it's like the the very fact of cinematic authenticity is like I have sat in that office or an office that looks, I you know, in the Washington Post office as it's being portrayed. I have I have grinded through the process of making hundreds of phone calls to get a story over the line, and I mm-hmm. do not look like Robert Redford 
and it is not <laughs> as exciting as this movie makes yeah. it. So it's like it's like inherently cinema glamorizes things, even if it's not intending to. It's like you're putting yeah. it on a giant screen with a beautiful person, and it's edited with precision, and you give people the best opportunity to say the right things or to flub tactically and give it that you know edge or whatever the case may be. But I also think about that as well. It's like while we while I'm while I'm a person at the be- beginning of this program even like where you know 67 episodes in where you know encroaching on that halfway point so so close um i i feel like i've even started to dispel that concept of authenticity as like and trying to look for better ways to approach it like yes there is authentic there's tactile it's costumes it's in the shooting it's in the textures um but but i think it's accessing it's there's something about the inherent glamour of, of the way that it's alluring you or mystifying you or magnetizing your eyes that then like allows you, you know, Brad Pitt driving that car in once upon a time in Hollywood from Rick's house to his trailer mm-hmm. and watching the way that Tarantino has constructed this beautiful, you know, um, very time, time period appropriate version of LA at night, including, you know, redressing different parts of LA and then going to places that haven't really changed. Like, obviously mm-hmm. that is all a glamour, um, but yeah. oh man, is it, is it a beautiful glamour? Like we can just be happy, you know, it's like, a, yeah. I know that there's a lot of work been done to get us here, but it's all for the feeling of that it gives yeah. you. It's all for the feeling of uh, like, uh, and, um, I think all of us who are stuck in their, our houses are, are yearning for that, like, um, that, that this is what these, this is what these spaces felt and feel like and could feel like again. Well, that's the paradox you know, of, of Hollywood movies is that the more realistic quote unquote they are, the more work went into manufacturing that realism. I mean, again, yes. I know we've been talking about, I know we've been talking about Spielberg a lot, but like, look at a movie like Schindler's List. I mean, which, you know, Schindler's List is one of those movies that feels like, uh, you know, aside from the fact that it's recognizable movie stars like Liam Neeson and Ben Kingsley, I mean, there, that movie does have this sense of, it doesn't feel staged to me, you know, it feels like a camera happened to drop in and voyeuristically observe these people and what's going on. And yet the reason it feels that way is because the thing was production designed and costume designed (laughs) within an inch of its life. And that's, uh, and certainly that's the case with all the presidents. I mean, giving the sense of like casual, uh, work that these get, you know, this casual sense of like, this is what it's like to work in a newspaper and, you know, that newspaper set was, as you've talked about on your show, you know, it was designed down to the garbage cans having like the garbage from the Washington Post office in there practically. And, uh, you know, the old, and, and, and that's, yeah, it's just, again, it's the paradox of movies, unless you're talking about, you know, super low budget movies where they don't have any money to design things. But I often think that like the movies that are, the movies that tend to be the truest mirrors of their moment, I think tend to either be the really, really big studio movies that have all the resources at their disposal or the exploitation movies, you know, like, yeah. like, like, like switchblade sisters or something like that. <laughs> um, because those, those movies have the authenticity or they're, or they're reflective of their era because they don't have the money to create anything. So they're kind of like aiming and shooting and it's like the actors are wearing their own clothes and the people on the street are not extras they're whoever's walking by. And then the super, super expensive studio movies are reflective of their era because they are putting 
tens of millions of dollars at the service of trying to appeal to the mass audience of that moment. Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, but, but anyway, I'm kind of getting off track. No, no, I I think it's a good, it's an interesting discussion of like that paradox. I love that you said that. And, and there are bits, I think also smart, and this is like, there are so few movies that get to have the luxury of doing this, but the immediacy of all the president's men bringing it back to this film is those slices of Washington that do not have to be redressed, that are literally the mm-hmm. exact spaces, places, things took place. Mm-hmm. They give, they make this very well-funded Hollywood picture that is like a slave for authenticity, have beautifully authentic and, you know, incredible sequences, and they don't have to redress it. Like the Library of Congress existed exactly as it did for those guys when they went and shot there. So they don't have any of mm-hmm. that hardship that sometimes happens when you're like, oh, God damn, I need to recreate this place. It doesn't even exist anymore. These shot fronts don't exist anymore. I've got to redesign this. They don't have any of that quandary. There's nothing like that. So that time mm-hmm. space is so, oh, that's fine. We can do this. You know, that's no problem. And so I, I, mm-hmm. I think that sometimes that immediacy is also really, really great as well because you can just literally, you know, walk, walk into a space and have the people dressed up as they need to be and, and going in through those streets and that all those tactile things that are, you know, switching on the actors and inflaming the actor's imagination and helping them bring rich performances together and all those sorts of stuff and moods and tones, like it's just there. Like you just shoot it and it's yeah. There. And, and Well, that's a bit, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say the one final thing. It's strange, you know. We're talking about different, you know, big, big budget films. Is it's the thing of you know? I watch uh, recently watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, just went back and watched it, which is obviously incredible. But there are just scenes in Lord of the Rings that I know that you know people might go, "Oh, what about you know Helm's Deep and hundreds of thousands of orcs and stuff?" Man, just the Fellowship running through like a glade in New Zealand with a snow capped mountain behind them. Like there are like Mm -hmm. helicopter shots that like whip pan around these characters. And those make my jaw drop or like Mm -hmm. in the the two towers, there's uh, they, they um, uh, go to the hall of the writers of Rohan. I'm not going to remember the exact name of it, but they built this building they built this hall on top of a mountain in New Zealand. They scouted it. They found it. They built a village around it just tactically for the movie. Like they erected it <laughs> in like a national park. And then they obviously just mm-hmm. assembled it at the end of the movie. And I watched these helicopters go around this place. And it's like, there is nothing, no CEI magic, no golem, nothing that is as like, that is a gut punch like that. Like that is mm-hmm. cinema happening. That is not a lie. That is like, this exists. Middle Earth mm-hmm. exists and it's New Zealand in those moments. Like there is some of those moments where I'm just like for all the special effects that have to tie ultimately the story together to tell everything, those tactile things of people in makeup or someone like that. It's like that, you know, they, they have this way of penetrating you as a viewer that I think that none of the special effects or like redressing things ever really can do. Well, and I think you're so right what you were saying about what it does for the actors in something like All the President's Men when they're on location and things like that. Because I've observed just, you know, I've been on a lot of sets, whether it's my own or friends or, you know, visiting on TV shows and things like that. And I just, you know, with actors, like especially on TV shows where they'll generally have, you know, certain standing sets that are in every episode. And so they'll shoot, they'll shoot maybe 
three or four days on those and three or four days on location. Yeah. And the energy when they're on lo- there's when they are on those sets that are on the stages, they no matter how great the sets are, there's still this just sort of default they go into that has to be overcome where the actor is thinking, you know, they are conscious that they're on a set and this is a set that they go to every week, especially if it's a TV show or something like that. And so that, that there's just this extra little barrier, but you know, even again, no matter how great an actor is and, and most great actors, especially nowadays, they're used to acting opposite tennis balls and pretending that it's Gollum or whatever. But, um, <laughs> you know, they, but there's still, you know, it just, it just, it, it, when they are on location, you can just feel it when they're responding to the, you know, to, to real people and all the variables that can happen, you know, because I mean, there's that famous, um, you know, John Ford quote where he said that all great things in movies happen by accident. And then Orson <laughs> Welles, was, and then Orson Welles said that a director is someone who presides over accidents. And in a way, the more you can create those circumstances, the better a movie is going to be. And the least you have the potential for those accidents is when you're on set and when you're dealing with CGI stuff. Yes. Uh, you know, you, you're not going to get that, which is why in a way, I mean, and I'm not one of these, like, I'm certainly not anti-digital person and I'm not an anti-CGI person. I think it's great for a lot of things, but I do think that when horror movies, for example, were more dependent on practical effects and on, and on actually building actual creatures and stuff. There was more variety in the look of, of those movies and how the, what the creatures were like because they were handmade and there were accidents and it wasn't just feeding stuff into a computer. And so anyway, I think just basically just agreeing with your point that um, the authenticity you get from shooting on real locations and from Hoffman and Redford going to the places where Woodward and Bernstein did that work, you know, that, that does give them something as actors, which I think then does translate to the viewer, uh, you know, in a way that is not necessarily tangible. And it's just somewhere like buried in the fabric of the celluloid somehow. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the, it's the unquantifiable. I, sometimes I'm happy with the unanswerable, just acknowledging it. Like being able to acknowledge that unanswerable quality. Now, all that being said, of course, uh, it is highly possible. The, the thing about it is, you know, it's highly possible that a lot of my favorite moments in movies are CGI. And I don't know <laughs> it because they were so good that they tricked me. So, you know, I mean, maybe I'm only noticing the CGI that isn't done as well. <laughs> but that, that, I will freely admit that. that for all I, you know, I mean, for all I know, Tarantino is lying and uh, all the backgrounds behind Brad Pitt in that movie we're all done in the computer i don't i, uh, I don't think so but uh, it's possible I, I don't think so look and and you know another uh, movie that's close to my heart that is some something that i'll be exploring in in, in a series soon um is zodiac and the use of cgi mm-hmm. in zodiac to create or to recreate spaces or to augment the reality yeah. of spaces um is is, yeah. is something that a lot of filmmakers looked at and went oh well, this is the way to use CGI to complement things and sort of restrain. Cause there's yeah. that whole, like sometimes going to like fashion, a completely green screen world is incredibly hard to do. Um, mm-hmm. because like you said, there are no accidents. It's just work. There's sort of a more laborious thing. You've got to get the energy of the actors are all flat. And it's like, if you have, you know, if you have like 
Ruffalo, for example, you know, stalking around a street, um, uh, the actual street corner where the Zodiac Killer was, um, and then you mm-hmm. use a green screen to sort of block out contemporary San Francisco so that it can be later augmented into the throwback um, period piece San Francisco. It's like there is something still about that energy, even though it might be sort of strange that, like, he's on the street. His feet are touching yeah. the pavement where that thing happened, and there's something special about that that unique experience. Yeah, and look, it's all—it's just about whatever works, and, yes. and what works for one director is different for another director. I mean, Fincher is a perfect example. That's like you know, I, I always think of the fact that you know Fincher is notorious for doing dozens of takes, and you know, there's you watch the making of stuff on the Zodiac DVD, and there's like a hilarious moment where he keeps making Jake Gyllenhaal just toss a notebook onto the passenger seat of his car over and over and over <laughs> and over again, yes. and. Um, you know, obviously that kind of perfectionism of a Fincher or a Kubrick or whatever, you know, results in great movies. Uh, but then you get a director like Clint Eastwood, whose motto, you know, used to be three takes and fuck it. And <laughs> his, he makes great movies too. I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a better scene in a movie than the scene between Tim Robbins and Sean Penn on the porch in Mystic River where Sean Penn is crying. And that was two takes and they were done. So it's just kind of whatever works and different directors have different metabolisms and different directors have different, you know, and I talked with Tarantino about this actually, um, you know, because he is such a purist that doesn't like, doesn't have, you know, digital effects in his movies and all that kind of stuff, you know, but he admitted, he said, you know, he, uh, you know, when he watches Titanic, that's pretty fucking cool. Like, you know, he said that, that, those, those digital effects in that movie, he's not going to argue with. So it's like even, even a purist like Tarantino can acknowledge that there's a value to it when a director who's a master of the technology is, is, is harnessing it. Well, there, there are no explosions. There are no orcs. There is nothing in this scene, but just a beautiful <laughs> car scene. It's like, it couldn't yeah. be more pure. It's such a pure yeah. scene and the energy is so pure. And it's like, if you can't, generate energy and intensity in just the confined space in this little tiny echo chamber between these two absolutely titanic forces you're already doing something wrong so like i think the ingredients here it's like the ingredients are so good it is like truffles and butter it's like these two things (laughs) were made to go together (laughs) to a certain extent and so like in this moment these two guys in this scene arguing and watching their tension and this is really one of the uh, there has been attention throughout the movie, but it's nowhere near as um, overt as this scene. And like, we get to see them deliberate and continue this ongoing argument about whether they have the story between one another, which is why I think later on in the movie, we have such confidence with what they actually deliver. But I just love this. I love, I love these guys. I love watching these guys mm-hmm. at this time together. I mean, you can watch route. You can, you know, the other week I watched three days of the condor and I watched straight time. Um, uh, both mm-hmm. of these guys around this time doing this movie. And it's like when they're, when they're together, you know, m- much like, you know, we talk about contemporarily with something like once upon a time in Hollywood and you see these two yeah. incredible stars that are acting across from each other and mm-hmm. bringing their a game. And we talk about it in heat. Yeah. It's like, it, it just, something magic happens. Something unquantifiable yeah. happens when you have these two guys in the same frame bickering. Yeah. It's just great. Yeah. And it doesn't happen as often as it should in movies because no. there's, you know, the star system is so geared towards, you know, there, I mean, I mean, you've got buddy movies and things like that, but it's, it's, it is weird how that 
is not done more. And I think that is one of the reasons people loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much was just having that star wattage of DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, two of the biggest movie stars in the world right now at the peak of their powers, you know, together sharing those frames and the back and forth. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of two for the price of one. And um, it is, I agree with you. I mean, I love Three Days of the Condor and I love Straight Time and I love Jeremiah Johnson and Straw Dogs. I mean, I love everything those guys were doing in this decade. But you just the the energy coming off the two of them together in this movie and in this in this scene and then just you know the it's interesting that the two scenes we've talked about are this one and then the thing where Redford goes over to Hoffman and you know catches him correcting his story <laughs> yes. um, because because that's another great scene of the two like the the scenes where the two of them. Uh, you know, clash would be too strong a, a word, but the scenes that are, have conflict with between the two of them, again, it goes back to that thing of like, this is not a movie of amped up moments, but it's the way conflict often really is in life. This, you know, the kind of low way, this kind of the, the low level way it kind of simmers and Pecula and Redford and, and, and Hoffman and, you know, to a certain degree, Goldman and, you know, I mean, all these guys, they're just, they're masters at kind of knowing how to perfectly calibrate that so that it feels real, but also feels like a movie and delivers the, the tension you want from a movie. And it's, it's also capitalizing on their personalities, you know, I think, and we've yeah. talked about it a couple of times in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I've watched it a few times very recently, um, uh, to, you know, I showed a friend who hadn't seen the movie yet and I was just super excited and, you know, I just, there's something so dynamic I love about the scene where, where Rick is crying and Cliff says, mm-hmm. not, not in front of the Mexicans. And it's, 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 they're there out in the car park and he gives him a little embrace and they get in the car and they have their conversation and Cliff is trying to empathize with him and comfort him and get him, get him back up and pep him back up. And he eventually uh-huh. does. And that entire sequence is such about those guys' personalities. And it's such about our expectations of those guys versus the reality of those guys and then playing and tinkering with that expectation and reality. And I just, the, the, where you end up at that scene when they sort of come apart. And similarly with these guys, it's, you are, you are so invested in the way that you expect these guys to act with one another. And then when there is a little bit of conflict and when there's a disagreement and how, how it gets to that equilibrium. And it's, I don't know, there's just a magic of those, you know, everything that's going on with those guys and those characters. And obviously we know that these guys are playing Woodward and Bernstein, but it's also Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman are having this interaction and their different styles are clashing and the Brad Pitt Mm -hmm. style of cool is clashing against the Leo cool or the Leo acting. And it's just completely different. This stylistic clash, all those little things seem so simple when you talk about it, like that tiny little conflict, but it's, I think these are, these what make whole movies is that the energy that can be just sparking off of this, off off of the celluloid before anyone even talks. (laughs) It's just like the energy of the scene is already there. Yeah, and that's just the alchemy of movies. I mean, that's just, you know, the, like you say, it sounds easy, but if it was, it, it's obviously not easy because how many movies uh, have podcasts devoted to them that are, <laughs> you know, four, 40, 40 plus years old? Um, you know, it, it's, and, and, and it is just, it's just like, you know, movies are so delicate. I mean, you take one, and I've probably talked about this here before, but you just, you take any one element and change it. I mean, if all the president's men, if it had a different production designer, if it had a different cinematographer, certainly if 
you know, I don't know who would, you know, if, if Warren Oates played the part instead of Dustin Hoffman, yes. you know, you've got a totally different. Oh my movie. god. Um, you know, and and probably not. I think, Warren Oates, I, th- I think Warren Oates could have played one of the editors. He's definitely gruff enough to tell someone that their <laughs> yeah, story is yeah. horseshit. Warren Oates, Warren Oates <laughs> might have been able to be like Martin Balsam or something <laughs> like that, maybe. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, but but again, even just like you talking about Jane Alexander, it's like even somebody different in that part, it's a different movie. Um, yes, and yeah, there is just th- those. It, you know, I mean, I, I think it was. I don't know if it was somebody like Godard or Truffaut, one of the French new wave guys once said that every movie is a documentary about its own making. And this is like the perfect example of that. Like all the president's men is all the things it is. And it's also a documentary about Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman <laughs> at that moment in time. Yes. And what, you know, two, when they were two of the biggest movie stars in the world, but Redford was this kind of, you know, traditional Hollywood, good-looking, you know, guy. Hoffman was a little bit more the kind of, you know, new, new, twitchy. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's like, you know, the, the, the contrast between the two of them is simply in the fact that, you know, Redford wanted to play the part Hoffman played in The Graduate and Mike yes. Nichols turned him down because he said to him, you know, have you ever struck out with a girl? And Robert, Red, Robert Redford said, what do you mean? And Mike Nichols said, that's why you're not the guy for this movie and cast Hoffman. And that that's, is, the, that's that, one of the, you know, that's sort of the essence of the difference. I think one of the, the guys that's has, one of the greatest casting stories in the history of mankind. Yeah. <laughs> have you, ever, so struck that's out, have you ever struck out with a girl? What, is that, what do you mean? If yeah. your answer is, and, what do you mean to that question? Right. I mean, <laughs> and, so that's like kind of the contrast between the two of them as leading men. And this is a movie that is a document of two different kinds of equally viable leading men at, at that moment in film, film history. And what happens when you put them both in the same frame together for two hours? Maybe. Yes. Yes. Oh, Jim, you thought we didn't have it in us. You thought <laughs> we didn't have another hour in us, but I think we absolutely have proved that, mate. Thank you so much for being coming back on the show and chatting to me again. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I, 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 I'm gonna every everyone who listened to the last episode, I'll make sure that in the coder of the show, I will direct you off. I'm so thrilled that you got to speak to Val Kilmer. I'm probably going to harass you as soon as we get off the call to see if I can get in touch with him um, via <laughs> you uh, because I would love to talk to him. But uh, no, mate, this has been such a thrill to talk to you again. And I think uh, the sprawling journey that I get to go with you in these conversations through um, you know, the different historical modes and thoughts has been its just a treat. So, And it's always great to talk to you, mate. So I just want to say a huge thank you for being a part of the show again. Well, thank you. I, I always enjoy it and I'm very honored. And I always it's funny that you had Kenneth Horan on because he uh, he and I have both been on a couple of the same like radio shows and podcasts, and I always think this poor guy he must wonder like what has what has become of me and my legacy <laughs> that I'm that I that I'm always on these shows with this guy Jim Hempel who <laughs> keeps following me on these shows. But uh, no, I I, I I love talking movies with you, and uh, clearly I had more to say about all sorts of stuff than I thought I did. You so. did you you ah. did you did and and I, I'm gonna have to promise I'm gonna just shout it out now. Zodiac Chronicle is a project that is coming up. I have to get you back for that one. I will be back for that. That's one of my all-time favorites, for there we, sure. There we go. There we go. You've heard it here first. Thanks, Jim. You're the best. <laughs> All right. Thank you. The great Jimmy Hemphill joining me again. He is an absolute treat. I hope that my friends and, and familiars and just any listeners around the place, firstly, 
uh, if if you are in LA and things do eventually open up at the at the break of this outbreak, uh, you get to see him tussle with some incredible filmmakers because he, by reputation alone, is one of the very best doing it. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at Jimmy J I M Y H E M P H I L Jimmy Hemphill. Guys, thank you so much for listening to all the President's Minutes. We'll catch you on another episode very soon. Lots to come this week. We can't wait to share it with you.